You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, if you've got a, a Bible there, can you open it to the book of 1 Kings? 1 Kings chapter 3, it's on page 338, if you have one of the church Bibles. Let me have my welcome, uh, especially if you're here and you're visiting, you're new, maybe even for the first time. I don't really know many of the folks here, so there might be a few visitors. It's great to have you with us um, this evening as we look at God's Word together. Um, 1 Kings chapter 3, have you ever done a series on 1 Kings? No? No? Okay, well, there you go, that's the next series lined up, 1 Kings. Just to clarify, by the way, I did not preach my first sermon when I was 12, uh, as, as may have been picked up there. Um, 1 Kings chapter, we're going to read chapter 3 uh, and a bit of chapter 4 as well. This is the story of the great King Solomon. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong, For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court, Now, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, the woman also had a baby. 
We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. And the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Then on to verse 20 of chapter 4. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subject all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tiphash to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district officers, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and other horses. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Haman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Well, what is that all about? Let me just pray and we'll look at this great passage together from God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the great God who spoke to Solomon all those years ago. And you're the God who will speak to us tonight through your word. Father, we praise you for your Bible. We praise you for your law. We praise you for 
the fact that we can hear your voice as we sung those words from Psalm 119, how great it is to listen to the voice of God. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your word this evening. And, Father, above all, we pray that in your word we would see Jesus, our King and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to look at this passage from the book of 1 Kings. Let me just tell you broadly uh, what 1 Kings is all about and what I think we can learn from it today. 1 and 2 Kings are really one book, and they record events that happened in Israel's history around a thousand years before Jesus, and it charts the, the rise and the fall of Israel's king. It begins with um, the kind of golden age of prosperity that we have just read of there under the great King Solomon. Uh, and it ends with the kingdoms being split in two and the northern kingdom, Israel, eventually being destroyed by the Assyrian army and the southern kingdom, Judah, destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonian army. It is a tragic, tragic tale of how God's people and God's kings drifted away from his words. But this is not just a history book. So whenever you read kind of um, these Old Testament history narratives, don't just think of them as mere history. Think of them like sermons. This is a sermon using real events that really did happen in Israel's history. Because when we look at Israel, we are not just looking at any old nation. This is God's chosen people. And the author of 1 Kings doesn't just want to record what happens, he wants us to learn from what happens in their history. And so here's what I think that the big message of this book is. If you're going to read 1 and 2 Kings yourself, uh, this is what I think the, the melodic line is of 1 and 2 Kings. It's this, if God's promises to his people are to be fulfilled, we need a king who will be perfectly obedient to God's word. If God's promises that he has made to his people are to be fulfilled, there needs to be a king who is perfectly obedient to God's word. That is the single theme of one and two kings that carries throughout the entire book. And that is what this author is trying to convey. Long ago, God made a promise to a man called Abraham. He made a promise that his descendants would be this great nation that would inherit God's chosen land and they would have peace on all sides. And through that nation, salvation would come to the entire world. And as the Bible progresses, you start to see that, that those promises that God made to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, they start to become tied to one lone figure, God's chosen king. So if God's promises to his people are to be fulfilled, we need a king who is perfectly obedient to God's word. Now, let's dive into the story that we've read. Didn't look at the, the first two chapters, um, but basically the story, what happens there, um, you, you've got the, the story of Solomon's ascension to the throne. Uh, it's surprisingly similar to the story of how Michael Corleone comes to power in the first Godfather movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Basically, Solomon's dad, the great King David, dies, and then Solomon just wipes out all his enemies. I don't know if you remember that scene at the end of The Godfather. It's brilliant. Um, but rather than a mafia mob boss, it's God's chosen king. So 
Solomon does that. He wipes out all God's enemies. He ascends the throne, and he is now established as Israel's great king. And here we see in these two chapters why he was such a great king, why he was a paradigm of what a great king would look like. And it's all linked to one key attribute, his wisdom. That is what Solomon is famous for in history, his wisdom uh, and his wealth. So I have two very simple points that I want us to see from these chapters. Firstly, the need we have for a wise king. And secondly, the benefits of living under a wise king. So firstly then, the need for a wise king. Now what makes Solomon so great? Well, you can see in verse 1 to 15 of chapter 3, Solomon we see is a man who loves God. You see that in in verse 3. And God appears to him in a dream and essentially says to him, Solomon, whatever you want, ask of me and I will give it to you. Now just think about that question. Here we have God, the great creator of the universe. And he is essentially saying, he's giving Solomon a blank check. Think about it honestly and ask yourself, what would you say if God said to you tonight, whatever you want, ask it of me and I will give it to you. Because how you answer that question reveals what it is that you desire most in your life. It reveals your priorities But look at what Solomon's priorities are here. Solomon, he knows who God is. He knows who he is in relation to God. He knows he is God's servant. He knows that the people that he is about to rule over are God's people, not his people. So what does he want? Verse 8. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Solomon wants more than anything else wisdom to discern between right and wrong but notice why he wants wisdom. It's not so that that he can make the right choices for himself in life. He wants it so that he can make the right choices for God's people. So he can lead them wisely. So here we have a man who loves God, who wants to walk in God's commandments, and who loves God's people. And God is pleased with this request because that's what God himself is like, this kind of selfless, humble request to serve these people. And so God in the end, does end up giving him riches and splendor so that there's scarcely anyone in history who is as wealthy as Solomon. This might be a good task for some of you here to try and work out what the net worth of Solomon was based upon the information that we have uh, in 1 Kings. I don't know, that's probably more exciting for the congregation of Chalmers Church, which is made up of accountants and and lawyers and stuff. So, um, Now, what's the author trying to tell us, though? What is the author of One Kings trying to convey in telling us this? We could say that he is pointing out how noble a pursuit wisdom is. And there's something in that. The Bible puts a huge emphasis on Christians pursuing wisdom. And there's a whole genre in the Old Testament of wisdom literature, most of it written by Solomon himself. But 
ah, we need to think bigger than that. I think our author is trying to tell us something much bigger than that. The author of 1 Kings didn't write this primarily to tell us what we need, but to tell us the kind of king that we need. Selfless king, a wise king. And it appears that Solomon is that man. That the beginning of of the fulfillment of these great promises that God made to Abraham. It looks as if Solomon is that man, that he is going to be the one who's going to be bringing in these great promises that God made. But as you read through 1 Kings, you see he starts off well, but he falls tremendously. The story of Solomon is one of the most tragic stories in the entire Bible. And in fact, you can see little cracks starting to form. See in verse 1, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Now that goes directly against what God had said his kings were meant to do in the book of Deuteronomy. The cracks are forming. And it's obvious that Solomon is not the king. We need someone different. Solomon in chapter 3, think of it like this. Solomon is like a blueprint, a blueprint of what's to come. He's, He's not the real deal. He's not the one who's going to bring in these promises. He's a picture. The building that he was a blueprint of came a thousand years later in the person of Jesus Christ. We need someone whose love for God and dedication to God would be greater, whose love for his people would be utterly selfless, whose wisdom would be infinitely greater. We need a greater than Solomon. And interestingly, that is exactly what Jesus calls himself. In Matthew 12, Jesus is speaking to some religious leaders about an incident that happens later on in 1 Kings when the Queen of Sheba or the Queen of the South came to visit Solomon to hear from his great wisdom. It's a very famous story. I think if you're any, any of you here are fans of Handel, I believe he's got a song about it. Um, but also, also Queen of the South, the only Scottish football team to be mentioned in the Bible. I looked everywhere for Hibernian, but it's not there. Um, that's neither here nor there. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is speaking of himself as the greater than Solomon. And he is the king that not only Israel, but the entire world needs. Why? Because he is God himself. Come down to us in the flesh. Come down to rescue us, perfect in love and humility. The great eternal king of kings, the Lord of lords, the beginning and the end. It's all pointing towards him. All those kind of obscure Old Testament passages that we started off our service with uh, this evening. It's all pointing towards Jesus. And because he is the only true, eternal, everlasting king who is perfect in justice and love, the Apostle Paul says this of Jesus in Colossians 2 verse 3, Jesus Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's an incredible statement. All wisdom. 
All wisdom that we see now, all knowledge that we know now is just a muddy reflection of what finds its source in Jesus our King. That is the King that we need. That is the King that we have here in the church. Now, for some of you, that might rail against you because you might think, well, I don't need a king. I mean, I'm the boss of my own life. I, I'm the one who's in charge. I don't, I don't need some, some king. I don't need some ruler over me. Well, I would say, well, I'd say two things. Firstly, whether or not we feel that we need Jesus as king doesn't change the fact that he is king. We may not like that idea. I think naturally we like to put ourselves in God's place and think that, that we're the boss. But at the end of the day, whether you believe it or not is irrelevant because it's true. Now, you can look at the Gospels, you can read the Bible, you can weigh those claims out for yourself. But secondly, I think we struggle with this idea of, of having a king over us, of having, having a ruler in charge of us, of every aspect of our lives, because we see it as, as oppressive or, or controlling. And God is it's like some sort of tyrant, some sort of big brother figure. And even some Christians have, have conveyed that, that twisted view of God and how they speak of him. But let me answer that objection by looking at the rest of our passage. Because I want you to see, and this is what the Bible wants to convince you of, that when you live under the rule of a wise and selfless king, it is the most liberating and enjoyable way to live in life. This is the only way to be truly free. And I want us to see the immense benefits of being under King Jesus' rule, of submitting to his authority, of turning to him and asking for forgiveness. And to remind those of you here who are Christians of what you have now in Jesus Christ to give you some perspective on reality and to rejoice. Paul says to the church in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that they have every spiritual blessing. Credible statement. So let's do that. Let's see, first of all, how we see it under Solomon's rule. Remember, he's our blueprint to help us understand Jesus. And then let's see how we see it under the greater rule of the greater than Solomon, Jesus himself. Second point, the benefits of living under a wise king. We see this in five ways. Firstly, wisdom brings about justice. It creates a just and a fair society. So the story that we have in, in chapter 3, uh, 16 through to 28, it's a tragic story. Again, we have these, these two prostitutes, both with infant sons, and, and one of the, the sons dies in, in a tragic accident where, where the mom accidentally uh, kills him. Now, one of the ladies claims that in the night, the other lady exchanged her living baby for the dead one. And the other woman denies it, says that's not true. And so you've got these two women that have come before Solomon's throne to seek justice with conflicting stories. How is Solomon to judge which one's right? It's really clever what he does. He takes a sword and he pretends that he is going to chop the baby in two. And of course, the real mother would rather let the, the, the lion lady have her child than have him killed. And so she says, give it to her, give it to her. Give the baby to her. But the lion lady, who is, who is still very bitter about her own son's death, doesn't want this other lady to have a child and says to Solomon, kill the baby. 
And in their reactions to this situation, Solomon is able to determine who the true mother is. His wisdom brought about justice. Look what verse 28 says. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Where there is a wise king, there will be a just society. A wise king cares for his people, even though in the eyes of society, just remember who these women are. These women would have been considered moral outsiders in that culture as prostitutes. But wisdom cares for all and seeks justice for all. That's why it would have been great to live under Solomon's rule. Secondly, wisdom brings order. Chapter 4, 1 to 19. I didn't read uh, that huge list of names. Um, It's not that they're not important. They are important. Um, But you can see there that what is essentially, it's essentially a list of Solomon's government. Uh, And you think, well, how does knowing that Elihoreph and Ahijah have been secretaries, how does that help me today? doesn't exactly get the pulse racing, does it? But it's very important. Because what we see here in this list of names is that Solomon had a well-structured and a well-ordered government. See, wisdom is not just about making good moral judgments for the people. It's about putting in place good order and structure for the people. It's about preventing chaos and and creating a structure in which society can live well. And you may, like me, not be very gifted at administration, but if we lived in a society that was unstructured or we worked in a place that was unstructured, it would be an absolute nightmare. Thirdly, wisdom brings joy and peace. Um, This is perhaps the most important thing to note about Solomon's rule. Look at verse 20. This is what life was like under King Solomon. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, they were happy. Everyone has an abundance of stuff and they're happy. But there's more going on in these verses than just the people's happiness. This verse is speaking of that promise that God gave long before Solomon to Abraham, that from him, remember the the language of the promise, from him would come a nation as abundant as the sand of the shore. And this nation would inherit a land that that would have peace on all sides. Verse 20, it seems we've got a reference to that. And look at verse 24 and 25. Uh, He ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tifsa to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. And during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, every man under his own vine and fig tree. They're in the land, they're surrounded by peace, they're growing as a nation. And the author is trying to get us to see that because Solomon was such a great, wise king, God's people are starting to experience those blessings that he had promised long ago. Now, we know it didn't last long, but remember, we're looking at the blueprint here. It's pointing forward to something greater. A king brings joy and peace to his people. Fourthly, wisdom satisfies the heart and the mind. Wisdom satisfies the heart and the mind. In verses 29 to 23, uh, the author now kind of examines just what the nature of Solomon's wisdom is like. Uh, I love verse 31. 
So he was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite. Uh, now, I've been wondering who this Ethan guy was, uh, if he was around. I don't know if he would have been around when 1 Kings was written, uh, how he would have felt about that. It just seems a bit random, but it's proof that, that what we're looking at here is just history. It's a historical document. These are real people. But notice what we read about Solomon's wisdom. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. They're here in the Bible. You can read them yourself. They're wonderful. These proverbs, they, they stimulate the mind. They get you to think about how to make the right choice in life. We did a series on, on some of these proverbs and, and chammers, and the feedback from everyone was how practically helpful it was in so many situations in their life. It's great to have a king that offers that to people. But notice that his wisdom is not just cerebral. It's about celebrating and, and enjoying beauty where, wherever you can find it. Solomon appreciated beauty in nature and in art. He, from the, the, the biggest tree of Lebanon, it says in verse 33, down to the, the hyssop that grows out of the walls. I like to, to think that uh, as someone who appreciated beauty and art, that if he was around today, he would have appreciated great music like Iron Maiden. Well, he actually probably wouldn't have needed to because he wrote 1,005 of his own songs. What a catalog that is. He, he, he looked at, at God's creation. He saw the fingerprints of his creator everywhere. He wasn't just locked in a room studying his books. That's not what wisdom is. It's about appreciating what God has made, enjoying beauty and art wherever it could be found. It satisfied both the hearts and the minds. That is what he gave to society. Fifthly, finally, wisdom has a global impact. The wisdom of this great king wasn't only for Israel, but his wisdom was so unique, it was so great to be under the rule of Solomon that he started to draw in the nations. Verse 34, at the end of our section, men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. God's wisdom in God's king was so attractive that it had a global impact. So you see, being under the rule of Solomon would not in any way have felt oppressive or constrictive. You knew that under Solomon you could approach his throne and get justice. You knew that everything was well structured. You were able to have great joy and security knowing that you would not be attacked by enemies. You were able to learn from him, to have your minds engaged and, and your heart enriched by his wisdom. And you knew that you were part of something that was bringing in all the nations. You were God's chosen people living under God's chosen king, experiencing God's blessings. But we have to see that if Jesus is the greater than Solomon, which he is, then the benefits of living under his rule will be infinitely greater, which they are. When we study Solomon's reign, we, we begin to see this king bring in God's promises. But, but these promises were never fulfilled through Solomon. It was fulfilled through the greater than Solomon and the greatest expression of Jesus' wisdom as the great king of kings was seen specifically in one event in his life. Well, 
not his life, his death, his crucifixion. Because it was at that moment, Jesus, our King, was punished on our behalf, punished for all our wrongdoing, so that we could be accepted by God as perfect and all our sin being removed from us, gone forever. We do nothing. Jesus, the great King, does everything. He pays the price for our punishment, and all we have to do is trust Him. The cross is the ultimate expression of wisdom. Because it's there we learn how God can destroy and punish our sin without having to destroy and punish us. It's there we see how unbelievably selfless and loving Jesus was. And what did that great act of wisdom do? It brought in the nations. No longer are God's people one nation as they were at the time when Kings was written, but it's people from all nations as the church of Christ. And anyone who trusts in Jesus becomes God's kingdom people. That's why Paul also says in Ephesians 3 verse 10 that the church is the manifold wisdom of God to the world. So do you see what that that means for us today? Being under Jesus' rule is not oppressive or restrictive. It's the only way I can be truly free free from sin, free from condemnation, free from myself, freed from my performance, my weak moral performance, freed to fail and to try again. Now we experience the benefits of living under his wise rule. Just like those two prostitutes came before Solomon's throne, so too can we come before Jesus' throne and find mercy and justice to help us in our time of need. It's Hebrews 4. Christian to us. Our king's wisdom shows his justice towards us. Even though our sin deserves punishment, he has found a way to remove that punishment and still be just. Our king creates an an ordered community of people to care and to look out for one another. It's called the church. Our king gives us peace and joy. It's It's the joy of knowing that no matter what, I can know for certain that God loves me. God will always accept me because of Jesus. It's the peace that comes from knowing no matter how many times I muck up or how many struggles I face in life, I am always at peace with God. Our King satisfies our hearts and our minds through His Word. His wisdom leaps off the pages of Scripture, teaching us how to to live in light of reality. It's his beauty that we see reflected in music and art and creation. And our king brings the nations to him. The church is to be a multicultural society in which all barriers are broken down and people from widely different backgrounds are united together under the cross of Jesus. That's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We experience in that great freedom now under his rule and glimpses of joy and peace in a broken world. But whilst we have benefits now and we know God's promises began to be fulfilled in Jesus, ultimately the full benefits, the complete fulfillment of all of this won't come until the end of time when King Jesus returns to bring in that new creation, when we will inherit that heavenly land and have that eternal peace, and it's there we will have perfect justice. 
No longer will any of us have any sin or deceit in our hearts because it'll be gone forever. We will have the perfect ordered and caring society where the reality of love will be perfected in all. We will have an unending fountain of joy as we enjoy Christ more and more for all eternity. We will have everlasting peace as all evil will be eradicated forever, as every tear will be wiped away and death will just be a distant memory. We will celebrate and be satisfied both in heart and mind by the beauty of the new creation and by the wisdom of the king who made it. And as we're told in Revelation 5, we will be part of a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who will gather around the throne of Jesus and will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. That is what you have under the rule of King Jesus. Every spiritual blessing. Let me pray. Father, thank you for King Jesus. Father, thank you that what we see at the start of Solomon's reign is a blueprint for the great king that was to come, our king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Thank you that he has come, that that king that Israel waited so long for has come, and that he came to save us from the greatest problem we face, ourselves and our sin. Thank you that Jesus has removed it all, And Father, thank you that if we come to him in repentance and trust him, we receive the great benefits of being under his rule. Lord Jesus, help us to understand what we mean when we say that you're our king. Help us to live as if you are our king. Help us to be like you and to pursue wisdom which is ultimately found in you. Thank you for this great example And thank you, Jesus, that you have saved and rescued us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.